I'm Ece Özdemiroğlu. I'm Sabina Apetz. And I'm Jill Duggan. Welcome to season two of Join the Dots. We've spent our careers giving advice on the environment and learned that choices are never straightforward. But working through the complexity is rewarding. Here in each episode, we explore the issues surrounding an everyday choice to help you decide what's best for your health, wallet and our planet. You can find more information about this and other episodes on our website, jointhedotspodcast.com. And we'd love to hear from you on Instagram, Twitter and Facebook. episodes we talked quite a bit about how we can spend our hard-earned cash on a variety of things from as little as a reusable mask to as large as installing a heat pump in your home or buying an electric vehicle but it's just as important to talk about how our cash works for us and others after all oh do I dare uh, money makes the world go round the world go round the world go round <clears throat> Yeah, okay, it's not a singing podcast. Anyway, it's from the cabaret. Um, In this episode, (laughs) we are going to talk about where we keep our money, in particular banks and a few aspects of how they're behaving environmentally. In future episodes, we will also look at how we are investing our money, in particular the biggest investment some of us will ever make, our pensions. We have a speaker lined up for that and we must emphasize that our conversations are not financial advice. We are not qualified for that and our discussion is very much focused on some aspects of environmental performance of these institutions. It's not possible to cover all the things you may want to know about all this in a few episodes, but hopefully our show notes and references will help you delve deeper into your choices. So to talk about banking, we are joined by the most unlikely banker, well, not really a banker, Dr. Sarah Kemet. Sarah is one of those wonderful career wanderers from a PhD in ecology to United Nations Finance Initiative via Bank of England and many more stops. Welcome, Sarah. Did I get it right? Was it PhD in ecology? Hi, Eche. Yes, it was actually soil microbial ecology, to be more precise. But yeah, a variety of ecology. Yeah. Soil. Oh, my God, Sabina. Sabina is beaming because Sabina is our mud queen. Yeah, but I do sediments. The soil has to be very wet. Okay, so let's see the challenge. How do we squeeze soil into a conversation about banks? But we're meeting here on the, well, here online, of course, on the 6th of February 2022, a Sunday to note uh, that because that's how much we love this stuff. So please, Sarah, start us off by telling us a, a little bit about yourself. How did you went from PhD in soils to United Nations Finance Initiative? Well, thank you, Eche. It's been a really long and twisty journey to get where I am now. I mean, probably going back a bit before the PhD, and it was really in the late 80s, I went to UEA to do one of those first multidisciplinary degrees that were available in environmental sciences. To me, I felt that the environment was really going to be the most important issue of our time. 
And then after university, I ended up volunteering for quite a long time and then eventually got bits of paid work. But I was managing ancient woodlands, lowland heaths and wetlands over in East Anglia. But I became really increasingly aware that the reserves that I was managing were like little oases within a sea of monoculture. And I felt that actually what was really important was that we needed to fundamentally change the way we grow our food and eat. So I got really into permaculture and agroforestry and I went to Bangladesh. University in North Wales to do a master's as that was one of the only places that actually taught agroforestry. And then later I went back to Bangor to do a PhD on um, the sustainable management of soils, which was where I studied organic matter dynamics. I did that PhD and then I did five years of postdoctoral research at Rothamsted Research, which is one of the oldest agricultural research stations in the world, actually, where a lot of very sort of seminal work on soil science and statistics was done. And it was a huge privilege to work with some of, you know, the, the world's best soil scientists there um, and have some really fantastic international collaborations. But my personal situation was a little bit challenging as I was earning the only income for a family of four and postdoc salaries at that time were not very good. And also, I wasn't really happy bringing up my kids where I was living and really needed to find a solution. And kind of eventually after I I felt like I'd had a few hard knocks, I decided to look outside of working as a research scientist. And, you know, that was a real emotional wrench for me. But I moved to the British Library to develop a strategy for them to support scientists, but also, importantly, the users of scientific information and to help them to navigate the digital information transition. And I had a really good um, almost three years there. And what I really hoped to achieve was to improve the way science was used by you know, practitioners and policymakers, et cetera, to, to make more of a difference. Because although, you know, I really loved working on fundamental science, I kind of felt we know enough because we know what we need to do. It's actually the action that's really the highest priority. And I thought maybe working on the information flow was a, a really important part of that. And then it was I'd say pretty random that one day in the back of uh, the New Scientist magazine, I saw an advert for a job at the Financial Services Authority. And they said that you didn't need experience in finance because they would train you. And it was just after the financial crisis. And I, I really had not understood the financial crisis in any depth at all. You saw the news, but I didn't really know what the heck was going on there. <laughs> I don't understand still. At the time, I didn't know how a bank worked or any other financial industry for that matter. But I applied and it took about nine months and five interviews. And during that time, I kind of read books about finance and talked to friends that had worked in, in finance and things. And eventually, I kind of became convinced that ultimately what was destroying the environment was really how people were spending money and investing capital. And I thought, maybe if I can learn about finance and having a background in environmental science, there's a way to bring these things together to really affect a lot of change and the impact of sort of financial and human capital on natural capital. Yeah, so it took me a long time to learn about finance and I worked in financial regulation and internal auditing for 10 years, but it was a brilliant way to get a really deep understanding of the financial system because I was supervising banks and building societies and I also worked in the Bank of England's own internal audit function, so I really got under the skin of what a central bank does, which is 
really, really fascinating. So kind of had such an in-depth experience of central banking and commercial banking. And then I was able to start to apply that to how we supervise the risks that are posed to financial institutions from climate change. So these are risks that might come from the physical effects like a drought, a flood, a storm or a heat wave, but also from the effects of transitioning to a low carbon economy. Managing the risks from climate change is really important for financial stability. And that's all looking at how climate change will impact a bank or an insurer. But ultimately, I felt to head off these risks, we've really got to look at the impact of the financial institution on climate change. And financial regulation hasn't really yet moved on to that side of the equation. So at the end of 2020, I left the Bank of England and I went to work for UNEP-FI, which is the United Nations Environment Programme Finance Initiative, where I established the Net Zero Banking Alliance. And I also work on the Net Zero Asset Owner Alliance Secretariat. These are both voluntary commitments where financial institutions have committed to aligning their portfolio with a 1.5 warming trajectory, which means that we need to bend that global greenhouse gas emission curve down now and start hitting net zero emissions by 2050. Tell me a little bit more about net zero banking. I mean, we hear this term a lot, but it's rarely defined in any context for the the non-expert. But what exactly does net zero banking mean? Are there specific criteria or how is that evaluated? I mean, it's, it is quite a complex thing. If you look back to the Paris Agreement, so the Paris Agreement was to try to restrict global warming to well below two degrees, aiming for 1.5. And if you translate that into a carbon budget for how much carbon can we burn to achieve a particular warming outcome, that means you could be kind of in line with a two degree warming outcome and hit net zero around 2060. But if you want to restrict global warming to 1.5 degrees, there's a big difference between 1.5 and 2 degrees warming, then you need to be hitting net zero emissions by 2050. And what that means is we have to actually start to decrease our global emissions from now until 2050. We have to decrease them by, I think it's at least 7% each year. We can't just keep on emitting at a high level and then when we get to 2050, suddenly cut down to zero because we're going to blow through our 1.5 degree carbon budget in nine years at the current rate of emissions. So when it comes to banking, what that means, it's about their operational emissions, which is all of the emissions from all of their buildings and their branches and their machines and computers and servers and flights around the world and um, all of that kind of thing. But the real crucial thing is a concept called financed emissions and another concept called facilitated emissions. So what financed emissions are is when a bank makes a loan to a company It's a concept of kind of responsibility that some of that company's emissions are then attributable to the bank. And there's different ways to kind of do the carbon accounting around this. And there are some really great initiatives that are really making progress. But fundamentally, it's about how much of the real economy company's emissions are then attributable to the bank. And if it's done through a loan, then it's called a financed emission. But then we have this other concept of facilitated emissions, 
which is if a bank helps real economy company to, say, issue some shares, for example, the bank isn't holding those on their balance sheet, but they're facilitating the creation of that equity. And so, in theory, you could attribute some of those emissions from that company to the financial institution. That's an area where we don't really have an established methodology yet that's been widely accepted. Another type of facilitated emission, which is really new, is the idea of an insurer underwriting a, an insurance policy, that they're somehow facilitating that economic activity. So coal plant can't operate unless it has insurance to operate as a corporate. So there's now a a notion which is very new of insured facilitated emissions. And then, of course, there's owned emissions. So if you're an asset owner, which may be a pension company or an insurance company that actually owns assets, owns shares and bonds and, and other types of assets, then they own part of that company which is creating those greenhouse gas emissions. So what we're looking to try and do is to help banks and asset owners and all the other types of financial institutions to align their portfolios with a scenario that's going to limit global warming to a 1.5 degree scenario. So most of the criteria that we have are around the nature of the scenarios that they're allowed to use to set their targets and to say the targets have to be in line with the science. And to be honest, it's really, really challenging because in many sectors, it's very hard to reconcile what we need to do according to the science to reduce greenhouse gas emissions by 2030 versus what the industrial sectors say is possible to achieve by 2030. But philosophically, it seems a massive change because when I was learning about pollution control and climate change policy, there were only two actors. There were the polluters and there were the regulators, and you created policies to polluters to pollute less. Whereas the world that you're depicting now has got enablers, facilitators and asset owners, that the people behind the polluter who is making pollution possible. So actually attributing some of the responsibility to those enablers like the banks and the investors, insurers, is almost revolutionary, wouldn't you say? This is why it's just been such a massive game changer, because problem that we've had with the failure to address climate change has really been an absence of the kind of policies that are going to help to achieve that. So whether it's to do with carbon pricing, whether it's a fiscal policies or regulation around what's permissible to do within the real economy, we just have not got that kind of policy landscape that's facilitated that decarbonisation. So the finance sector is really, really leading the charge in a lot of these areas and actually is showing much greater ambition, sometimes than governments and sometimes greater ambition than their corporate clients. Mm. These are voluntary initiatives, but the driver is social or corporate responsibility. It's a societal or a stakeholder or a shareholder expectation of responsibility. In a way, you're asking the engine of capitalism, the financial system, to divest from climate change. Ah, well, that's really interesting because we have a theory of change within the net zero alliances. And I'm not saying that divestment doesn't have a role, 
but it's not something that we necessarily encourage because it's possible for financial institutions to divest of their polluting assets and therefore make their portfolio look really good, but they may not have actually achieved real-world decarbonisation in doing that because those assets could be picked up by other players in the economy, especially private equity. Because if you're not divesting or, as you say, reducing ownership of these companies, what are you doing? You're becoming a partner in their better practices. How is this implemented? So in the finance world, it's largely called client engagement. And what we really encourage is engagement between the financial institution and the client so that the financial institution can really understand the transition plan of the client and evaluate it and really push them to be in line with a 1.5 trajectory. And so it's a deep engagement process or, you know, having an exclusionary policy could be the answer in the end. But it's far more preferable if the financial institution can really help that decarbonisation process. And also, sometimes it needs a fundamental shift in a business model. Um, I wanted to come back to the drivers, because Sabina mentioned about social drivers, you know, pressure on the, the banks and the financial service. And there's obviously a competitive driver as well. If one bank is doing, the other ones want to join. And that's why you could kind of get more and more banks joining your alliance or somebody else's. But is there a kind of a self-interested financial driver as well in that if they don't do something about climate change, if we don't all do something climate change, it's their investment that is at risk from extreme weather or increasing temperatures. And I use this as a positive thing. It's not as a selfish and horrible driver. Actually, it's the most sustainable driver, probably, because even the social interest dies down, that they're still interested in protecting their own investments. Does that come up as well? Does that come up explicitly? Yeah, definitely. I think for many financial institutions, they are now seeing climate change as an existential threat. So for an assets owner, they're there to give pensions to people in their old age and you know are people going to be able to retire are they going to be able to have an old age if we have catastrophic climate change insurers are they going to be able to insure if we're in an uninsurable mm. world it is actually an, an existential threat to many banks because of the the level of threat that there is to financial stability I kind of view them as two sides of the same coin, and it's become known in Europe as what's called double materiality. So one thing is to think about the risk that climate change poses to the financial institutions, so to their assets. Will their assets become worthless because of either some physical damage from a, a storm or a flood, or because we've transitioned to a zero carbon economy and the business model of the clients is now redundant or not allowed or somehow impaired in value. And so there really is a threat to the assets that are held by financial institutions. On the other side of the coin, it's all about impact and aligning with 1.5. And actually, that is the only sensible mitigant that we have to the risk is that if all parts of the economy align to a 1.5 degree scenario, that's the only way that we're going to have an orderly transition 
that's going to avoid the, the potentially catastrophic consequences of, of climate change. So, yeah, I mean, it's definitely in their self-interest, but as much as it's in the self-interest of everybody to align. It's not charity work here. It's not just good nature. Doing what we consider the right thing is also deeply, deeply self-serving because we're all part of the same system. Yeah, that's right. And Net Zero Banking Alliance is very focused on one thing, and that is climate mitigation. It's really focused on decarbonisation, but it's actually kind of part of a much broader framework that, that UNEP-FI runs, which is called the Principles for Responsible Banking. And that covers lots of other areas like nature and biodiversity and financial inclusion and thinking about water risk. And so many of these things are really intertwined when you get into the nature of those risks to ecosystem services, water, nature, all of those ecosystem functions and climate. So, you know, hopefully there's lots of win-wins to be had out there. We are having a, a fascinating conceptual discussion, but actually this is real stuff. These are real banks. Some of them are high street banks, very recognizable names. And if you just Google Net Zero Banking Alliance, it comes up anyway. But you can search that you've got 102 banks in your membership in 40 countries. I'm reading it off the website. I haven't memorized. It covers total asset value is 67 trillion US dollars. And that you know, in itself wouldn't mean anything, but you have the very useful statistics next to it on your website saying this is 44% of global banking assets. So the banks that manage 44% of all the assets banks on across the world have committed to support businesses and reduce their own emissions in line with a 1.5 degree climate change. And there's a whole list of banks here and there's a search function. So anybody listening to this, you can go to this link and we will have it in the notes and you can search for the bank that you're banking with to see if they're a member of the UNEP-FI Net Zero Banking Alliance. If they're not, you know, contact them and say, why aren't you? Not that, I mean, we're not promoting the Net Zero Banking Alliance, but no, if, the, if you're not a member of this alliance, what are you doing about this, right? What are you doing about your climate emissions? And don't just talk to me about you buy renewable energy for your office space. Tell me what you're investing your my money in kind of businesses and sectors. So it's just possible to write to banks, isn't it? Yes. Mm -hmm. Sarah, when we talked about this before, you said to me that, that so much of finance industry relies on individuals not engaging. What did you mean by that? And does that affect how banks behave in this context that we're talking about? That most consumers engage very little with their financial service providers. Mm -hmm. So there's a, a very popular sort of statistic that people change their partners more often than they change their banks. I think most bank account holders stay with the bank for 17 years, whereas the average British marriage is about 11 and a half years. And I mean, I certainly still have the bank account that I opened when I went to university, so more than 30 years ago. You know, and also so many people don't have the time or the interest to engage with it. And for example, so many people just let their insurance automatically renew without shopping around. And actually, the FCA is really looking at that now. Companies take advantage of that lethargy. 
And so many people with pensions just leave their money in the default fund and they never really go into their pension and look at what it's invested in and actually make an active decision about which funds they're going to pop their money into. Many people really don't even know that there's a possibility to do that. So there's been some great campaigns like the Make My Money Matter campaign, and people are starting to realise that actually a lot of that money that is provided to the real economy by financial institutions is actually from your own savings and your own pension. Even for those of us that are not particularly asset rich, it's probably one of the most important ways that we can make a difference. But it is very difficult. And we are kind of almost kept out of the detail of the finance because language is different. Things are complex. How can we make this easier? Yeah, I think there's kind of three main barriers, really. So the first one is kind of lethargy and procrastination. And that is the same for everybody. And and I am as much as fault as everybody. And that's because it's in the important but not urgent category of life. It's really important. It is one of the most impactful things that you can do. But actually, there's always other things that are higher up the priority list. The second one is that really, even once you get around to it, the information is just not transparent or easy to compare. You know, I found when I went into my pension pot to look at moving around the funds that it was invested in, I just couldn't compare the information easily. And there's no real excuse for that now. And you look at how easily you can compare mobile phones or fridges on websites now. You know, I had to download a separate PDF for every fund that was available available, which was loads of them. You have to look at its mandate, its asset classes, its geography, its performance. You can't compare it easily. And I think to some extent, that's almost intentional on behalf of the uh, financial institutions. But then I think the third one is that there is a very low level of financial literacy in our country. And I don't mean that at all in a patronising way. I mean, Eche, you talked about how difficult you found it. You are one of the most informed and educated people as an environmental economist. Who's going to have better knowledge than you? And even myself, before I moved into finance, I had a PhD in things, but I had no idea. I didn't understand pensions. I knew the basics about how insurance worked, but I didn't know anything about the asset side of an insurance company. I didn't know what happened behind a bank branch or a cash point. And I'd only got to grips with mortgages when I'd really had to and sort of muddled through the different options that are available. So I think this kind of financial literacy also is such an issue. And I think really we should be taught some of these things at school because it's just so important about how the world works. Can I add a fourth factor there? Because, mm-hmm. I mean, besides lethargy and lack of information or lack of understanding, one of the big barriers in my experience is just a system that isn't designed to serve. Changing accounts, I mean, I could tell, sit here and tell you stories of trying to open accounts for organizations. It's true. I mean, regulation has really tried to address that and movements like the open banking regulation and the switching regulations have tried to address that. But I I agree. I think it's still not straightforward. But the other thing is about information. ESG, you know, environmental social governance issues themselves are not particularly straightforward as well. So there are different kind of scoring systems that are out there for 
banks and other financial institutions to help people to make decisions on selecting their their financial institution. But they kind of all focus on different things and they're so hard to condense so many variables into one number. And really, ideally, I think you'd be able to kind of put in some criteria that you're really interested in, like what are the bank's policies on arms or corruption and money laundering or climate, biodiversity, financial inclusion, governance, human rights, things like that. And then filter for things that that you really feel feel are important. But it's very hard to find all of that information. and You'd have to wade through loads of lengthy reports. Sarah, it's interesting you mentioned like you look at the criteria, what's in, what's important to you. And we repeat that in different contexts throughout the podcast, actually. So when we were looking at the bank that we work with, we came up with these three things. Let me tell you what they were and see, see, see what you think about them. So one was the investments and attitudes of the bank. So areas of active investments, were they supporting the things that were important for us that we wanted supported? And what were their exclusions? What did they exclude? What did they not invest and divest from, which was incidentally much easier to find information about? Um, and whether they had particular attitudes that told us anything so in terms of any statements they made that we even looked at the kind of what the CEO said on climate change and things like that which obviously everyone is not going to do but we also looked at practices of the banks or more social people related things not just the environmental perhaps whether they had any fines or court cases about obviously their tax situation, how transparent they are, how they score in terms of how they treat their workers and things like that. And finally, um, and we also looked at their operations, whether they could serve our um, commercial banking needs, because in the real economy, we do have to move the money around. And so there were some banks that were scoring very well in the first criterion, but their commercial services were very limited. The things that we needed, they they didn't do or they didn't do for kind of business that we are. We looked at was the goodshoppingguide.com, which has a a list on ethical banks and building societies. I'm not sure if this is UK specific, although some of the banks are international banks anyway, and they're scored across their all international performance. And then there's another rating thing called BVA, BDRC. It's an international consumer insight consultancy, apparently, which those two sources were the, the most comprehensive that we found. But I'm sure there are other sources of information available on the market. That right? That's what they say in the BBC. Did we miss anything else that we should have looked at? Do you think? How does that? How did we score? <laughs> how did you score with your scoring? I think that's a good set of criteria that you've pulled up there. I think. You know, one thing when you said you look at their interests and the sorts of things that they want to support, I mean, one reason why we don't have criteria on that is because we found that quite a lot of banks very dedicated to financing green things, but it's no good if they say, on one hand, we're putting two trillion into renewables, if at the same time, they're putting however many trillion into um, fossil fuels. 
And so one of them doesn't sort of offset the other, as it were. And that was why we as an alliance really focused on on the decarbonisation. But I have to say we're at the pledge stage. We're not. So now going forward, the really important thing is, is it going to be trans- transmitted into action? And that's, that's one of the unknowns. So I, I guess one of the things that you could have added into your criteria are what kind of initiatives are the bank is the bank a member of in terms of, you know, the environmental pledges, etc. Um, but like I say, a pledge is just a pledge. We, we need to start to see action. So, um, yeah, it's um, difficult to know what the kind of magic type of evaluation is. And I think that's one of the things that all of these different scoring systems all focus on different things and it's it's very hard to condense it all into one number and like you say at the end of the day you have certain customer service needs that are actually your priority in that relationship so we've talked about a few ways that we as everyday people might interface with the financial system, investments and choosing our banks but there's another way and that that is getting money from banks. So can we talk a little bit about what green loans and green mortgages are? Green mortgage is one where it is linked to the energy performance of the house. So in the UK, you have energy performance certificates. In quite a few countries, properties are are rated according to their their energy performance. And um, it may be that they offer some additional lending to make your property more energy efficient, or it may be that they offer a slightly lower rate of interest for a property that's very highly rated. So how does that fit? So green mortgages would be part of your net zero portfolio if a large part of your banking was in mortgages or that that would be one of the criteria indicators in your package is that how it's reflected in net zero banking objectives or how does that work yeah so in the net zero banking alliance we've listed out nine sectors and real estate is one of those sectors and the members have to set a decarbonisation target for 2030 or sooner for each of those sectors. So for residential real estate um, and commercial real estate, they need to set a target for the decarbonisation. And yes, they, uh, in the absence of actual data around energy use, they may need to use EPC ratings as a proxy for that to start to measure and track it. Can we define EPC rating for our listeners? Yeah, that's Energy Performance Certificate. So if you buy or sell a house, you will see an an EPC certificate for that property. And that rates how much energy it needs to function as a building that's lived in. And um, it also gives you a rating for how much you could improve that and what sort of things you would need to do to improve that. That is UK specific, but many other countries have um, some kind of equivalent, although many countries don't. And obviously, I mean, the, the best kind of data that you could get would actually be the actual electricity and gas consumption of the dwelling. But it's sometimes, well, it's not really possible for banks to access that on residential a lot of the time. So, 
Yeah, but hopefully we could move more towards that with smart meters and things like that. And another product that banks can offer is um, what's called a green loan or a sustainability linked loan, which may be where they're lending to a small medium enterprise or a corporate and they're giving a slightly preferential rate of interest because the money, the use of proceeds, that money is going to be used to make their operations greener um, or, you know, lower their emissions, etc. And sometimes actually the rate of interest can be directly linked to specific environmental KPIs. So KPIs are key performance indicators. So if a corporate actually manages to achieve an efficiency in their energy consumption within particular ranges, they'll get a better and better rate of interest that they're having to pay on that debt. Mm So this creates what what some people call a virtuous circle, doesn't it? Because instead of just doing a bottom-up or a top-down, everybody is engaging in their portion or you're attributing some of the credit and some of the responsibility to all the links in the chain. Mm-hmm. And, and then everybody benefits from improvement. Exactly. And that has to go all the way through the value chains within the real economy and then the investment chain within the financial services sector, because, you know, it is a a real chain of investment. So where do I, as an individual bank account owner, fit in that chain? What difference can I make? We touched upon some of these things, but what recommendations would you give well, I really think there's value in uh, looking into different banks that offer services that you're interested in or, or insurers or pension companies, etc., and really looking at their credentials on environmental matters and selecting ones which you feel are more in line with your values or give you the option to give you some assurance that your money will be used in a way that you feel is consistent with your values. So I would definitely spend a bit of time shopping around and looking into it. Thank you, Sarah, for some really insightful comments as well as your time. People often say that the capitalist system has fueled climate chaos and that the financial system, of course, is the engine for that. It's interesting to hear that the Net Zero Alliance and organizations like yours are now trying to engage in climate solutions. Fascinating that they're voluntary. This is being driven without government or policy unanimity. So things are going to move forward because of social and economic drivers and It's a very hopeful concept. We learned that there are different types of carbon or emissions. There are operational, which are our own or an organization with day-to-day emissions. There are financed, those that uh, a financial institution might finance, and facilitated, those that we help happen. So you're not just talking about 
change and investment, but a partnership for change, I thought was a very compelling concept. We need to get more informed and demand better information. We want to choose banks and financial institutions and investments that meet our values and objectives. Because as Edge pointed out, we can make a lot of micro changes in our lives, but our money fuels these financial systems, our mortgages, our pensions, our purchases, and our bank accounts. So the changes we make here can reward the values we value, and we can make investments for good and help fuel that virtuous circle. We covered a lot of stuff and thank you so much for sharing your insights and enthusiasm with us, Sarah. I want to end with one question and what is your tip for bringing all these different people together? What works for you that would work for us who want to collaborate and who want to learn about this area? It's been a real eye-opener for me, sort of changing field, because when I was a scientist, I always felt that it was the content of what you had to say that was really important. But I realized that, you know, from seeing how Mark Carney has really made such a sea change in this area, in particular, a speech that he gave at Lloyd's of London in 2015, it's not just what you say, it's actually how it's said and it's who's saying it. So how in terms of the language and the tone that's used and who in terms of the leadership, their gravitas and their charisma. And so I think what Mark did with his speech was he used the language of finance to translate what scientists had been saying for a long time into the language of financial risk. And he talked about market risk, operational risk, credit risk, legal risk, regulatory risk, And just brought home that what the scientists had been saying over there for decades actually had transmission channels to what the finance sector was doing over here. And very few people had made that mental connection before. As with all these things, with hindsight, that seems sort of mind. But I think it really is the case. It took till till 2015 for that kind of epiphany to happen. And I think also another thing that I've learned is that when I was a scientist, I sort of, I think I used to feel a lot that I should have all the answers and I should find all the answers. And science is quite a personal journey. And uh, when you come out of science, you realise the rest of the world is quite different. And that actually, I wasted a lot of time when I was doing research in the lab, banging my head against a brick wall, feeling that I had to come up with the answers. And I've really learned that what's a lot more important than working hard yourself to find the answers to the questions that you have is actually knowing whether you're actually asking the right questions in the first place. And you only really get that through talking things through with the right people that come from different backgrounds, really different experiences and bouncing around ideas. And I think sometimes with modern life, we're just so busy that we don't necessarily make the time to do that as much as we could and as much as would could really be helpful. Thank you for listening. Thank you to the rest of the team, Neil McCoon and Anna Gunn. You can find more information about this and other episodes on our website, jointhedotspodcast.com. And we'd love to hear from you on Instagram, Twitter and Facebook.